there. My name is Dr. Kim Ernest. I'm a licensed psychologist and licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania, and I'm the executive vice president of Pennsylvania Counseling Services. Today, we are here on the How to Be Happy Hour to talk about adult attachment patterns and how it influences our most important relationships. I'm Kristen Lieber. I'm a licensed behavior specialist for uh, PCS in Adams County. My name is Nicole Ramirez, and I have a Bachelor of Science. I am a family-based therapist in Schuylkill County. My name is Madeline Wachowski. I'm a family-based therapist also in Schuylkill County for PCS. Thank you all. So we're going to start out a little bit different than we usually do here on the happy hour. Um, because when I talk about attachment, I'm not quite sure what my listeners are thinking of and whether or not it is a more technical term um, than we typically tend to typically tend to tackle here on the How to Be Happy Hour. Say that five times fast. Um, so when we talk about attachment theory uh, or different attachment styles, we're speaking specifically to a theoretical orientation or sort of like a theoretical underpinning of how little babies and children develop connections to their primary caregiver. Um, specifically, this theory was developed by two theorists, Mary Answorth and John Bowlby. Uh, I think back in the 70s somewhere, do I have that in my notes? No, but I'm pretty sure it happened in the 70s. Um, and essentially what they looked at is the interaction patterns between caregiver and child, specifically within those first two years of life. Now, way back then, we really believed that attachment patterns were kind of carved in granite after that two-year mark. Um, we've really changed our thinking in relationship to that in recent years, um, suggesting that attachment patterns can evolve over the course of the lifespan, and there's a lot of reciprocity between the individual and their environment in terms of shaping attachment. Meaning, secure attached, securely attached relationships later in life can support and help an individual in healing from earlier attachment ruptures, moving their attachment pattern slightly closer to a more secure attachment pattern of relating. You're going to hear me use terms today, and my guests, my panel, are going to use some terms today, like insecure or secure attachment patterns. Um, secure attachment patterns are kind of the, the, the ideal. That's what we're driving towards in terms of attachment relationships. A secure attachment pattern essentially means that I have a tendency to have some confidence or self-esteem. Um, I believe at the end of the day that I'm inherently like made for good um, and am confident in my own competence to navigate the world, specifically social situations. Um, alternately, another component of secure attachment is that I'm generally able to trust and connect to others. I don't feel a need to be hyper-independent. Um, I also don't become overly dependent on important relationships within my life. And at the end of the day, tend to believe that others have my best interests at heart and I can connect and relate to those folks in a way that is helpful and adaptive. So we're driving towards secure. However, sometimes um, things don't go according to plan. And uh, sometimes we have caregivers that are struggling with some of their own mental health or behavioral health concerns. Um, sometimes we have caregivers that might be struggling with consistency within the attachment relationship. Sometimes there's very practical pieces that impair the attachment development. Um, moments of separation, caregiver illness. So sometimes it has nothing to do with the caregiver's style, um, but just circumstances outside of everyone's control that negatively impacts the development of secure attachment. 
So when we're talking about insecure attachment, it has a tendency to fall into three primary categories. And if you're reading about attachment patterns, you're gonna hear it more in terms of categorical. However, I'd like to challenge you to think dimensionally about attachment patterns, meaning that we can get closer to and further away from secure attachment, kind of on the basis of dimensions, um, thinking about my own esteem, like my belief in my own goodness, as well as my belief in the goodness of others. So think about it a little bit more dimensionally. Um, and I'll, I'll get our, our, our tech guys a, a little graphic that I made that'll help map this out for anybody who uh, is struggling, who is a visual learner like myself. So I'll get that plugged in here in a moment. Um, if we're dealing with somebody who has a tendency to struggle with their own esteem or their own confidence or perceived confidence in themselves, um, but they believe that others are inherently good, uh, that particular type of attachment pattern or particular type of relating is often called anxious or anxious ambivalent insecure attachment. These folks often have a preoccupation or a fear of being rejected. They may be more sensitive to rejection. Perhaps they see rejection where it's not being intended. Um, they often, it's based in their own lack of perceived ability that they have, um, whereas they see the others maybe being too good for them or beyond their, their value level. Um, anxious attachment folks might have some struggles with, uh, fear of abandonment may, um, create some challenges within their most important relationships by seeking reassurance, sometimes more so than is comfortable to be able to provide regularly. So it's totally okay to want to seek reassurance from your partner. Um, in these instances, what we're really referring to is, so much reassurance that it's not as pleasant or savory for the partner. Um, and that's basically anxious, uh, preoccupied attachment. From y'all, is there anything I missed or anything specifically you would say about that particular attachment pattern before I jump into um, dismissive avoidance? We can also jump back to secure. I, I should have opened it up to the panel when I was discussing it. I don't think I have anything. I think a theme in the mental health system now um, going along with that is when people don't necessarily have the underlying thought that people are inherently good if there's been a lot of trauma. Mm. So they might have this, you know, this self-esteem that they feel as though, you know, they're struggling with, but then there is the mistrust in other individuals to help them through it. Yes. So no, and that's a great like sort of segue into the the next insecure attachment pattern, which would be that avoidant attachment. So it's insecure avoidant is oftentimes the language that folks will use. And insecure avoidant is exactly that. They tend to perceive their own confidence and competence as like a little bit higher or good enough. Not that they're arrogant, but they see themselves as generally adequate. Um, however, they've found their environment to be lacking. Mm -hmm. um, so they might struggle with trusting others. These folks have a tendency to be like hyper independent and that will serve them in a lot of different places and spaces. And at the end of the day, oftentimes these folks may struggle to have their emotional needs met because they don't trust anyone to actually do it right. Mm -hmm. um, so if I give a part of myself to you, um, I'm inherently opening myself up for like some vulnerability. Um, and folks with that avoidant attachment pattern have a tendency to really prefer to avoid 
being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Um, But in service of that, they also avoid important, secure connections. Um, And that makes it really hard to like... we're inherently social animals, right? Mm-hmm. I often joke that we're just like bigger, less feathered chickens. Like, absolutely. <laughs> um, we are meant to be gathered in a flock. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when folks have that avoidant attachment pattern, they might find themselves more isolated. They might find their level of independence brushing up against having their own social and emotional needs met. Mm-hmm. Um Oh, this can also be called a dismissive avoidant attachment pattern. So I did miss that particular piece of language. Um, And they can struggle with intimacy. So um, relationships might be going okay, going okay, going okay, until it feels just a little bit too close, and then they bolt, and you never Mm -hmm. see them again. Um, The last attachment type that we should bring to the table, and again, we talk about it like it's a type or a category, but truly I think dimensions make a lot more sense in this space, um, is this concept of fearful avoidant or disorganized attachment. These folks have a tendency to have fairly low self-esteem as well as fairly low other esteem. Oftentimes, this particular attachment pattern is characterized by early uh, attachment trauma. Uh, Oftentimes, even when we're thinking about attachment trauma, we're speaking to more complex trauma or frequent repeated trauma in their early childhood. Um, Typically, folks that fall into this disorganized or fearful avoidant attachment pattern, they demonstrate a mix of both anxious and avoidant patterns of relating. So they might require a lot of reassurance and have a fear of abandonment, but then also feel really uncomfortable when they start finding themselves feeling connected or intimate with another person. In our field, I've always thought attachment to be really interesting because I think therapeutic relationships are inherently intimate relationships and therefore have a tendency to like stir up whatever attachment pattern that person had percolating underneath the surface. But for the most part, our attachment patterns have a tendency to influence how we interact with ourselves, how we interact with the world around us, and most importantly, our most important figures. So that was like the quick, quick on attachment. I've done like day-long trainings on attachment. So boiling that down into what? Probably longer than I wanted it to be, but boiling that down can... uh, That's the general overview. Um, What we know is that attachment's really positively correlated with mental health outcomes. So those who have secure attachment bonds or have a securely attached pattern of relating have a tendency um, to have better mental health prognoses, have a tendency to be better equipped to seek support in times of challenges. They also have a tendency to be more confident in their own ability to navigate life's challenges um, while also feeling comfortable in reaching out and soliciting help. So I just like spewed a whole bunch of attachment (laughs) knowledge. Um, Anything, what are we all thinking when it comes to approaching our clients or approaching one of the things that I've been really interested in recently is like attachment patterns within the workplace and how that influences the way we work with our colleagues and with each other. Y'all are in a unique situation in that you are co-therapists, that you team a lot of the work that you do. Um, I imagine your individual attachment patterns influence that from time to time. So how are we thinking that attachment plays out within the bigger picture when it comes to all the different places that it touches outside of the child caregiver relationship? 
Well, I think, um, so being an IBHS, when we start with a new client, we start with our whole IBHS um, assessment. I don't know if family-based, how you guys start that. But our first couple questions are to the parent, what was your family like growing up? What was, like, how were you um, disciplined? How do you discipline now? And I, they sometimes will be like, well, why? You're here for my kid. Why are you asking me that? And I'm like, you know, that all plays into not going into the depth of attachment, but it all plays into how you're going to discipline your child now. Um, and I find I sometimes talk to parents and they won't necessarily have gone through a traumatic event such as like abuse or anything like that, but they'll be, oh, well, my mom worked all the time and they kind of brush it off. But at the same time, if you have a parent who's working all the time, yes, they're not abusing you, but you're not available. They're not available to you to make that attachment. And they don't, parents don't see sometimes that maybe they didn't have that attachment and maybe how that could relay into how they're attaching with their children now. Yeah, no, those intergenerational patterns are often so hard to spot, and you see it even more so when you're in the thick of it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have something pretty similar in family base where, you know, the first 30 days is all about assessments and getting to know mm -hmm. the family, and it, we kind of discover with them, like, what kind of trauma did they go through? And that then in the first 18 years of their own lives with the parents – and then we discover with the kids, like, how much they've gone through. And so, it, like, it kind of brings light of their attachment styles with each of the family members. Because as you're going through it, I'm like, oh, yep, I can, you know, I can think of some families that are, like, avoiding almost, like, mm -hmm. you know, a, a wife and a husband. But husband works all the time. So the wife, you know, she's like, I got this. I, I don't mm -hmm. need any help. But, like, we discovered, you know the changes that could be made and sports that we can bring. So mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, that, that stands for sure. And I think even what you said, Kim, about bringing it into the workplace based on our own like upbringing, we go in there with this knowledge and, and stuff that our clients don't necessarily have unless they're in the mental health field themselves. Yeah. So we go in there with this knowledge about attachment and we're like, oh, I wonder if that's where this is coming from. And we question it, but it's funny because even sometimes I'll be like, are you sure you're coming? Are you sure you're showing <laughs> up on time? And you, that's our own stuff showing up. And we kind of have to like check that and, and you know, give the family that grace to figure that out with us and that co-discovery there. No, I, it's, I'm laughing as you're, because I think like there's so many different pieces here, right? And I, I imagine when you do those, what are you, critical event timelines? Is that what we yeah, call like them? Family based, the aces and yep. the critical yep. event timelines. And I think one of the things that we notice is that so many of these patterns repeat itself like throughout a family system. Um, and my husband and I were, uh, you know, having a conversation a couple of weeks ago where we were like, so we're just like kind of destined to give our children the same trauma that we received as children. Like, is that, is it, is it just this predeterministic, mm -hmm. like, and we, and it's our goal, or at least what Mike and I had landed on is this joke, like we'll be 10% better than them though. Like mm -hmm. that's what we're shooting for. Mm -hmm. Um, but like I grew up in a family system with a, a super like driven, hardworking primary caregiver, um, who was never there throughout my childhood. And now my whole message is like, well, I get, like, I only work like 60 hours a week. Like that's totally mm -hmm. normal though. Right. But then my own kids are like, mom, you're always on your phone or like put your phone. My, my five-year-old like knock it out of my hand. He's like, no phones, mom. <laughs> um, and I think those are some of the things that are new to this generation of child rearing. Mm -hmm. Like growing up, my mom would be on like a landline in our mm -hmm. kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. But like now 
I remember like sitting and nursing my baby, like scrolling Instagram yeah. or mm-hmm. whatever I'm doing. And then I look down and it's like, oh, like he's trying to make eye contact with me right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> like I totally missed it. Mm-hmm. And I think as caregivers, we're going to start noticing, or as the research evolves, we're going to start noticing how um, technology and some of these other things are influencing that attachment pattern development beyond like the capital A ACEs that we've been talking about more and more. Yeah, especially with with each sibling. I know even I'm the oldest of four, and I always kind of poke at my parents. I'm like, this would have never have, you know, flown by if it was me when I was living in the house, and now it's like the younger siblings are, you know, have that grace, but you do get a different set. And also it's the opportunity to recognize that attachment style that you have even now in your adult life and kind of really be curious as to, like, where is this coming from? Why is this showing up now? And not, like, going back at your parents and being like, I'm this way because of you <laughs> yes but you know a little at mom and dad there of like I am and, and I'm trying to work through it and, and figure out how it's going to play into my other types of relationships in my life like you said in the workplace and even your random gym membership workout class <laughs> that you go to that you're like oh I really don't feel like going but I have this commitment and this and that and it, you weigh all these pros and cons that just it comes into everything in your life when I think going back to kind of in the workplace, I know like you two work very closely together in IBHS. I supervise, you know, all of my behavior health mm-hmm. technicians and they're on my cases. And I have some who are like, yep, I got this. Like, I know what I'm doing on this case. And then I have other ones who like every little thing is kind of like, oh, am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? And they absolutely are all of the time, but just needing that extra level of reassurance. Mm-hmm. And I think having that background knowledge of like, okay, they might have just struggled a little bit with, you know, this whatever attachment style. And I try to really get to know all of my staff yeah. that I work with as well, just on a personal level, because then I think it helps when you're in those moments too, and able to give that reassurance. Yeah, I think that it's funny. I just um, was talking to some of our, the family-based clinical consultants, some of our supervisors about like, that the intersecting pattern of attachment styles in the supervisory mm-hmm. relationship and how like to, to some degree it's my responsibility as your supervisor to figure out how you best learn mm-hmm. how i can support you to be the best version of yourselves how you can show up and especially in this field like the behavioral health field um you don't get to do this work without your stuff showing up. Mm-hmm. Like you just don't get to, like, yeah. there is no way you get to work in behavioral health and be immune to your own story walking into the room. Mm-hmm. And m- most of us have a story, right? Like I, I, otherwise we would have gone into like a non-helping profession. Mm-hmm. But when you have a story, you pick a helping profession. And of course it's going to, intersect with our clients patterns of relating our colleagues our supervisors our supervisees um and similar to your point like you don't get to go back to your parents and be like you did this to me Mm -hmm. you made me this way Mm -hmm. um and it, it wouldn't be fair for like one of your supervisees to come in and be like well Kristen, see i'm uh anxiously attached so I need every day you to tell Mm -hmm. me repeatedly how good I am and how you're not going to leave me um that would also be a little unrealistic Mm -hmm. so it's our role to be flexible and to honor individual differences while also recognizing when the demands are kind of like what's mine and what's mm-hmm. yours? Deb Thomas, who mm-hmm. I know you all know quite well, mm-hmm. uh, always jokes about writing a book called Whose Shit Did I Step In? Like mm-hmm. my shit, mm-hmm. your shit, everyone's shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, like most of the time, it is your shit. Like mm-hmm. that you're stepping in in that moment. It just takes you a moment. Um, 
to allow the clouds to remove from your eyes and really see it more clearly. Mm -hmm. We're in the unique situation of being able to kind of have that, that being thrown into the vulnerability and not, you know, yeah. we're like, well, there it is. Our stuff comes <laughs> up and, and you can recognize it. But then we're also like, OK, we're going to talk about it in supervision, too. It comes out. Whereas like we can't necessarily force that on the clients that, that we're working with. We're like, oh, there it is. But it's like they're not going to let me go there today. And that's that work in progress. The longer you're working with them that, you know, maybe you do get to a point maybe with us, family base is eight months. Maybe it's the last day of discharge and stuff finally comes out and we're like, okay, okay, there it is. Like <laughs> there it is. the ultimate doorknob. Yeah. 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 But it, it is, it does help to put yourself in that situation and, and think about where it is coming from. And not a lot of people, I don't think consciously do that. And the more you do, the more you're like, you go down this rabbit hole of being more curious about yourself. At least that's the case for me. I'm like, oh, why? Why do I yeah. do this? You know? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting with Deb and Alicia. Like, they're always like, well, what could have done differently? Like, how can I better support you? And in previous jobs, like, I never really had that. And so I'm like, I have that attachment of, I got this. I can do it. And so it's like working with Maddie and Deb and Alicia, it's, it's nice. It's like reassuring in, in their own ways of being like, you're not alone in this. This mm -hmm. is a tough field. And mm -hmm. so it's like, you're not alone. We got you. How can, how can we help? Mm -hmm. And so it's just nice. It's, it's very reassuring. The partnership. And I know that we've been working with each other long enough now that if one of us, you know, maybe something comes up in a family session where it maybe rubs us the wrong way or it takes us back to something we've experienced in our own life, like we're, we can pick up on it now. Mm -hmm. Or just even looking at her, I can give her a look and she's like, oh, I know Maddie's feeling some type of way about this, well, what the parent said. And like kind of having that instant support and then the processing after, whereas the family doesn't necessarily, they don't have those those skills and that's what we're there to help with. But that's that's super, super helpful. Yeah, I think here at PCS, I've been here, um, actually yesterday was my two years here, Aww. I believe. So, um, But I've just felt like it is so encouraged to like have a close relationship with our admin. Like I know that I can go to Amy with literally anything. Um, oh, she's fantastic. Um, I called her, I was going through some personal stuff back the end of December and was like, I need to take some leave. Like, what do I need to do? And she's like, I'll figure it out. Like, you don't stress it. I'll figure it out for you. And like everything was taken care of. And I feel like in previous jobs, it was like, you're here to do a job. You're not supposed to get close. And I was a teacher. I had paraprofessionals in my room that I was spending seven hours a day with. Like, you can't tell me I can't get close with those yeah. people. Um, and so here, yeah, I'm maybe not seeing everyone as often, but knowing that it's, I'm supported to have that close relationship so that when stuff is going on in my personal life, I can go to, whether it's my supervisees that I'm seeing on a, a weekly basis at least or amy and say hey i'm having this really hard time they're there for me and it's not like oh how dare you have friends which i feel like if you already have that insecure attachment and then you're being told like whoa don't make friends you're kind of like uh, what, what do i do like how do i no, manage I, that you're as we're talking that I think you have to have that like basic underlying level of like safety and security within the relationship. And obviously there's a line, right? Like we can't, I supervise a lot of folks towards licensure supervision or I cover um, like right now I do a lot of like sub work. So it's a little bit different. I still have two licensure supervisees that are like mine, mine um, that I meet with regularly. But I think a big part of the work that we do is as a supervisor, helping the person we're supervising or like as a peer or colleague, helping the person that we're working alongside 
to notice when their own stuff might be coming into the room mm -hmm. and provide that safe container to explore that and look at that. It's also my responsibility as a supervisor every once in a while to be like, this is beyond mm -hmm. the scope of supervision. Um, and I think therapy is where you need to take this. And, and for the most part, anytime I've had to kind of have that conversation, it's pretty well received. Mm -hmm. And I've been in my own therapy on and off forever. I think everyone should go to therapy. Everyone should go to therapy. <laughs> um, literally, everyone should. Like, I think yes. we can all be better humans for it. Um, so I'm a huge proponent for, like, seeking out your own clinician, seeking out your own provider. Um Especially as a provider, because we're not doing the work in a vacuum. We are not building widgets in a factory. We're helping people develop a new pattern of relating to others. And that's really hard to do without feeling some kind of way about mm -hmm. it. And like you guys were saying, like, it's so easy to get triggered, like, mm -hmm. on your own. A parent, you're in a case and you're in the home and they bring up something that happened and it's like, oh, whoa, like, I've been through this. And trying to keep that clear lens, I think, too, of, like, I can recognize that this is touching somewhere with me, but I need to, like, kind of put my professional hat on. And I think that's where therapy comes in play, too, because I'm in therapy of my own. And, like, that's where I can say, hey, I, you know, was going through this with a client, and it really brought this up in me. And having kind of that connection there, too. Well, and for me as a supervisor, and I don't know where you, you draw the line, but for me, the line is always kind of like, is this grounded in our work? Mm -hmm. So if I am going, I'm, I'm in licensure supervision right now. I'm pursuing my LMFT. Um, I've been independently clinically licensed for like 12 years now. So it was new for me to get back into licensure supervision and also really cool because given my role at PCS, like I'm pretty much everyone's supervisor. So like there's not really a place for me to look at my shit mm -hmm. and me to look at how the work is impacting me or how I might be making the job harder for myself based on my own, like, negative, mm -hmm. like, my own history, my own narrative, whatever that is. Um, and I, I remember, like, one of the very first times that I took something to my supervisor, who is an LMFT, so, of course, person of the therapist, all that is, like, super big um, to her. I was like, can I talk to you about that? Like, is this okay? Is this appropriate? She's like, is it about the work? I was like, yeah, no, it's about, like, I'm having this recurrent like mm -hmm. relationship rupture at work and I don't know if it's me or the system or the context or what, but I'm kind of over having it. Can we talk about this? Um, and she said, oh yeah, that's totally appropriate. Bring it on in. But like that balance between like, mm -hmm. is it grounded in the work or is it grounded in like your own stuff? And for me, that's always where I draw the line between take this to your therapist versus we can look at mm -hmm. it in supervision. Um, one of the things or one of the data points that I had jotted down is that, um, like, why do we care about attachment styles, right? Because like, yes, it's these categories on a page. I'm going to, we'll have a graphic on the YouTube link so that you can see how the categories break down. Um, but what we know is those with anxious and uh, preoccupied attachment patterns or those with fearful avoidant, um, attachment patterns are linked to much higher levels of anxiety and depression, as well as increased challenges obtaining and maintaining close interpersonal relationships. Um, so this could influence a person's like existence kind of from start to finish mm -hmm. if there isn't some sort of insight and intentional intervention. 
Mm-hmm. I think something screaming in my head is, is social media. I feel as though the attachment styles are there and they're, they're not going anywhere, but the way that we, you know, we're facilitating them and the way that they are identified within a person is it goes about a different way. These days, kids younger and younger have access to, you know, mm-hmm. social media and that could be that constant validation right there. Even just having a post and simply getting a like is somebody feeling secure, securely attached to the internet, let, let alone having that, you know, different type of attachment with a person. So when we're having that conversation about an attachment style or, you know, with a person to person compared to person to internet, you know, people, I think it is, brings into a different kind of category there, a different dimension, like you said, of how do we kind of process with that? Because it's, it's challenging. It's not necessarily a person there anymore. It's like this entity giving that secureness to an individual. And I think so many kids with the access to the social media, if they're having trouble um, actually in person, and I know especially a lot of kids we get coming through IBHS, it's like, well, we just don't have the social skills. And I'm like, I mean, there's a lot of factors into there, but obviously social media access to that. So if they're struggling in person, are they finding some other route online and then they're just accepting that like this is how I interact and then that in person does not develop at all well I think it speaks to I mean even beyond children I think we've gotten like more and more isolated Mm -hmm. as we've gotten more and more connected and so the easier it is to stay connected to one another I think it is the harder the harder it's become to actually be connected to one another and be present like in the moment or in this, like um, I'm thinking about just like families sitting around mm-hmm. the dinner table. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many of them have their phones out while they're mm-hmm. doing it? Or um, when you look around a restaurant and you're watching, you're like, nobody's just like being a person anymore. Yeah. I went to a comedian like maybe a year ago now and they locked my phone up in like a little bag when I walked through the door. Mm-hmm. My husband's like, I'm going to go get a beer. And like, I'm just sitting there by myself. I'm like, what do people do? Mm-hmm. When like, no, it's scary. You're being there. a person, like doing person things. But like, I felt like such a weirdo. I was like, no, mm-hmm. like I don't have anyone around me. I should be looking at my phone, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, and then you're looking at people. You're like doing the whole people watching thing. And then you're like, yeah. do they think I'm weird because I'm watching them? But I don't have anything to do. I last and year. Neither do they. So yeah, neither do they. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like we could say hello, but that would be weird. Yeah. So like instead, I'm just gonna make this so awkward for everyone. Yeah. Even just having that that connectedness to yourself. I know I ate dinner by myself for the first time I went to Colorado with my cousin she had a work trip and I sat and had dinner by myself for the first time in my whole life and I was like this is strange (laughs) I was like I feel the need to FaceTime someone I need company but I was like no this is so the discomfort I was like all right I'm gonna thrive in this I'm gonna eat this shit up like I'm gonna sit in it and I'm gonna you know what I mean like this is something I feel like I need to go through as a person. I need to feel that. But it also made me even more curious of how other people relate to that. You know, somebody dealing with the loss of a loved one who they've had, and now they're in that grieving stage of like, whoa, I don't have that attachment anymore. I don't have that, you know, that connectedness to to another person. That has to be so challenging. I feel like we're finding it more and more that, you know, even teens are trying to connect through other teens that are also online. And so, you know, one, one kiddo cup comes to mind in particular of like she would much rather talk to friends online and talk about her own shit but like that connection with mom it's not there and so she's like I'm good with my friends but we come in and we're like let's talk about you know this this and this and she's like nope I'm gonna go talk to my friends and we're like so that social media aspect is it's killing it anymore no and I think the 
I think there's a lot of like upsides. Uh, yeah. There's, there, there, maybe not a lot. There's a couple upsides, <laughs> right? And I know like specifically like the populations you serve. Mm -hmm. There's some research to suggest specifically kiddos and adolescents on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, like online communication allows them to get a be better cerebral understanding mm -hmm. of communication because it's slowed down. Mm -hmm. So they can like understand the dynamics maybe mm -hmm. a little bit easier than in like a live mm -hmm. interaction between mm -hmm. two people. Um, and I think in an instance like you described, like this adolescent, you're coming in and saying, hey, why don't we all shift just a little bit to have these deeper in-person connections? And I mean, I think to some degree more authentic mm -hmm. relationships um, versus these online relationships of which a percentage are truly authentic, right? Mm -hmm. A percentage of those are genuine deep connections, but so many of them are um, surface level cursory relationships, um, that the minute you say something that I don't like, I'm never going to talk to you again. And because you live in Colorado, I can just cut you off. Lock um, I can block <laughs> you and we'll never speak again. Um, and I think there's some dangers to that. Like specifically go, you go into like this vortex or this echo chamber and you're like, Hey, you know, I don't like potatoes. And everyone's like, yeah, fuck potatoes. Like, <laughs> and nobody ever comes up and like, you know, potatoes aren't so bad. Mm -hmm. Sweet potatoes actually mm -hmm. a very nutritious food. Like there, nobody comes back and can contraindicate or like challenge your thinking or challenge you to look at your thinking in a way that's received mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we cut you off. Yeah. Well, I think with adults too, with social media thinking, if you have that insecure where you're, looking for maybe some of that reassurance all the time it's so easy to like go on someone's social media and just if you're maybe feeling not as securely attached to your partner it's so easy to go on and are, are they commenting on someone's post are they liking it? who's on their friends who's liking their post and you can kind of just snowball from there that if you're already in this kind of negative mindset of it and trying even if you're trying to build up to secure like you just kind of maybe have social media against you at times. And the stories people tell themselves about, like uh, my cousin just celebrated his, I think like 14th year of my, I'm on 11. So I think it's his 14th year of marriage. And I remember when he and his partner first met, she saw pictures of me with him on his social media, and he's like, is that your ex-girlfriend? Like, why do you have your ex? Like, that's my cousin. Like, but, like, mm -hmm. even the, like, they almost weren't because she was anxious about this other woman on his social media. Mm -hmm. And he knew, she knew he didn't have sisters, so, like, what's that about? It's like, no, we grew up together. She's like my sister. It's not weird. I'm not mm -hmm. that type. We're not from West Virginia. It's not that type of thing. <laughs> um, sorry, West Virginians. You are beautiful. I love your, your state. I didn't mean it. Um... But yeah, like that sort of thing and the, the stories and the narratives we tell ourselves about a lot of these different pieces. Each of you do work um, primarily with child, like you work with children and children are your like your IP, mm -hmm. but both of but you we work with, work with the system, mm -hmm. the family system, the educational system, um, that child's natural ecosystem. And you do it through kind of like different theoretical models, mm -hmm. um, but both of your programs and roles are focused on that transfer of skills. Mm -hmm. And so when y'all think about like navigating different attachment patterns, 
um, through a workplace setting, what advice do you have for other professionals um, in having big eyes for how your own attachment pattern plays out within the workplace, as well as sort of how it brushes up against the attachment styles of those on your caseload? I'd say jumping into it, like I definitely am like the rescuer and I, and I, you put yourself in the parent's shoes and you try to give the kid what you, what you think, you know, in your, in your clinical opinion as though they're missing in that attachment from their caregiver. And then eight months go by and you're like, well, I'm not going to be there anymore. So hopefully they grasped it. But the sooner you try and help them recognize that from the get go, that you're not stepping into their shoes as the parent, you're there to help them learn the skills to, to have that. The, the easier it, it tends to be, but it's definitely in our nature, you know, in the helping profession to want to jump in there and save, save, save and, and try and fix it and, you know, have the heart for the kid and, mm -hmm. and do that. But I, I guess the advice is just to kind of set that kind of compartmentalize that aside of knowing going into it, that that's not your place to step into those shoes. You're kind of just kind of hover in there with the parent, like as the support on the side. And I think like you're there to guide them. Mm -hmm. I try to think of it more as I'm not here to do it for you, but I'm, I'll do it with you. Mm -hmm. I have that conversation with parents a lot. They're like, oh, I'm all about construct constructive criticism. You know, you can tell me what I'm doing wrong. And I'm like, but I'm also going to tell you how you should be doing. Like, I'm not just going to sit here and go, nope, 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 don't do <laughs> not that. It. Mm -hmm. But I'm also not going to come into your house and just do everything for you. If, if you're not going to redirect this or do this. So we need to do it together. And I think similarly in the school system, I'm, I'm sure you guys aren't as involved in the school system mm -hmm. as I am. But again, I'm not going to do this for you. I'm going to do it with you. And I think we can do that with the attachment as well. I think showing them the tools that they can use, but also following through on each, like the day to day and the week to week and month to month, because yeah. before you know it, eight months is gone <laughs> but yeah. mm -hmm. just kind of anchoring back like well did you do this how did that work and so then you can process with them of like okay this didn't work let's try this this didn't work let's try this and so like kind of going through the steps with them and just jumping in honestly because I feel like you know day one is day one but and the check-in <laughs> yeah. check too a lot of times you know we'll be in month seven or eight and the family's like oh, I just feel like we haven't made any progress and you're like well let's look back at like treatment plan one and like where were we at there and then like treatment plan two oh we got a little better on this area treatment plan three we started to recognize like this is what our attachment styles are yeah. okay cool and then we're working on that so even just having you know those those check back ends of once you establish okay most likely this is the attachment style that I align with but then also like circling back on it often of like when is it showing up? How is it showing up? Where am I at with it now? And I feel like it also has the ability to change throughout your life based on the life circumstances that you're going through in different mm -hmm. types of relationships, for sure. Mm. Now you're, uh, I mean, that's another one of my big, uh, like, uh, and I'm sure y'all are sick of it as family-based therapists, but like <laughs> one of the primary reasons why I'm a big advocate for taping and filming your sessions, mm -hmm. your therapy sessions. I mean, that's not something we do much in IBHS, no. but um, huge advocate for it because I love to use tape therapeutically. So I love to show my clients, especially when we're doing trauma work. Um, one of my favorite treatment modalities when I'm working with clients through uh, like navigating traumatic events um, is a very specific treatment philosophy called cognitive processing therapy. And a big part of cognitive processing therapy is early in treatment. You help them go through and kind of identify 
um, how they've made sense of their experience, sort of that storytelling component. Um, and I love recording that session. And then at the very end of the treatment protocol, you do the exact same thing kind of all over again. Um, and what they're supposed to do in that session is like read their very, it's called the impact statement, read their first impact statement. And then at the end of treatment, read their first impact statement and their last impact statement side by side. But what I love to do is show them them reading their first impact statement after they read the second one. Sure. And like so often, it's funny, Kristen Wortluft, who's been on the pod, I love her, um, one of our therapists down in York and a little bit at 17th Street, she will, she will say that session 12 is her drug of choice. Um, like she loves watching people do that first impact statement compared to the second one and loves watching the way in which, like, it, it's just night and day. In, in 12 sessions, like, it's really not that much time. Um, but being able to kind of watch that development or evolution. Uh, also, in particular, you, you had mentioned the short-term nature of the work that you all do. And I believe your offs are a little bit longer, right? Our offs are a year, but if we come up to that year and we're still seeing the need for services, we can re-auth. Yeah, I don't think I realized that, like, family-based were so Is that short? short. Eight months. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. super short. I call it the toxic relationship and then a breakup. Because that's yeah. what it is. Like, we're yeah. in the thick of it, but it's also a beautiful thing because, like, we get to feel what the kids like at times. We get to feel, like, what the parents are feeling. If they're exhausted, they're annoyed by what the kid's throwing a temper tantrum on the floor. I'm like, yeah, that is kind of annoying. But we get to go home. Like, well, you guys don't get to do that. Um, but, yeah, it definitely makes it a little bit more difficult to do do the whole kaboot and battle in eight months. Because, <laughs> I mean, I... I've had clients that I have had in and out in eight months because it's kind of we got in, they picked up skills quickly. But I think if I was going into a case knowing, like, I have eight months to get my shit together and get them to get their shit together, mm -hmm. that's just, like, an incredible it's a lot of like pressure, pressure. Yeah. yeah it is and then when we have these convos and supervision it's like like i have lpc soup with mel and deb and they're like you're planting the seed maddie you're planting the seed and i'm like i know there's a lot of damn seeds hopefully out there <laughs> that are gonna grow someday you know like but that is kind of you have to do that 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 check of like even if they you don't make that that dramatical change you still might have given them that that small percentage of you're planting the seeds you're, you're giving them the tools to maybe take it to the next service that they have or wh whatever it is that they didn't have prior and I always try and remind myself that they were doing it before I came in the door mm -hmm. they're, they're still going to be okay like they're going to be okay um, and you know just because we're not there anymore doesn't mean that we take everything that we've worked on and it goes with us and I think that like that's why we get to be the agents of change in all of this. Uh, like we get to serve as that more secure attachment relationship. We get to um, like uh, one of the trainings I went to many years ago was called like you are a tool and mm -hmm. it's all about how do you, the use of self within therapy. Mm -hmm. And so recognizing that in many ways y'all might be serving as the very first secure attached like uh, secure-ish because obviously we all have our own stories as well mm -hmm. as the clients we serve are going to come in with different like attachment interfering behaviors mm -hmm. at times. Um, but we get to really be that safe, consistent relationship and we get to show up and kind of give them 
that experience with a different pattern of relating and then hopefully transfer those skills and expand it out to their natural ecosystem because we are we're planting a lot of seeds I don't use the seed planting metaphor but I use like the book reading metaphor mm -hmm. like it's like we picked up the book on chapter 8 mm -hmm. we get to read to chapter 11 and then we have to put it back down again we don't get to know anything we don't yeah. get to know how it ends we don't yeah. get like and that, that to me that's the worst part of our profession I wish that like my clients would do like a where are they now? Like mm -hmm. 10 years later, this is where I'm at. Like I probably wouldn't always want that. But <laughs> like for a lot of my clients, like it, you, I don't see them in the police blotter again. So like they're at least living better than the day I met them because mm -hmm. so many of my clients are mandated. Um, but you don't get to know how the story ends and you develop real authentic human connections to these folks and then ethical providers. When it's done, it's done. Mm -hmm. I know families will reach, like, we'll be talking about discharge. And now I do, you know, it's about a two-month time period that I'm, I'm talking about discharge. I'm not just up and, like, okay, bye. But constantly reminding them, like, okay, ethically I need to cut this off when we're done. Um, and some families will be like, but but what if I just, and I was like, I can't, I can't respond. What like, if I told you everything was bad again? Oh, right. Like, I filled yeah. out that form. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. and awful. then, like, what if it's awful? And I... But like, well, what if I just need help with this? Because I know I, I'm sure you guys do too. Like I become a support for the families mm -hmm. as well. I know mm -hmm. some families just see me as like a, almost as a counselor. Like just, I'm a person that they can just put it all out there too. And even yeah. if I don't have the answers, it's out. And they put it out in the universe and they're like, but I'm losing this. And I'm like, that's when we go into your own therapy. <laughs> um, but I think too, with the kids too, I can't imagine, like I know some of my kids get attached um, I just had a case that I had to administratively discharge after I didn't see the kid for over like 45 like we had to just up and stop seeing because of things and I had to really fight internally with like this kid already has a lot of trauma and attachment stuff and now here I was this person for him for over a year and I just disappeared on him and so I think sometimes too that's hard one those administrative discharges or even when we are planning it and telling them hey like you're not going to see me anymore, like recognizing that we've established that attachment with them and now we're retracting from it. But I think if we're able to give them, give the family the skills that they're repairing their attachment, they at least have someone to fall back on. I think that's the hardest part because I am eight months into family based. And mm -hmm. so I am coming up on, I just discharged my first family. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the kids and the family rely on us so much. Mm -hmm. And internally I'm like yeah this sucks like yeah. I'm so happy for you you did it successfully mm -hmm. but like this sucks it because that's it eight mm -hmm. months we discharge to whoever we need to discharge to and that's the end of it and it's hard because you know school county is not that big so we go into schools often and we're like we'll see you around but like yeah we can't talk or we can't you know check in and it's so hard so. yeah you're running we both live in the county too so yeah. then you're in the grocery store just trying to get your groceries and you're like oh <laughs> hi Great. yeah it, it's Small lovely now. but even just us showing up there i mean going to the same family the same time every single week you're you're giving the opportunity to enact some type of a change even after we leave and they might be like well now that maddie and nicole aren't here that's our designated time to meet as a family and we're sitting down together just as though if they were here that you know they wouldn't have done prior yeah
It's tough, though. And, and I think it's like, I don't know, whenever I discharge with a client, I always say, like, and let's say I run into you at the grocery store or the gas station. You need to know, I won't approach you. I won't act like I know you because it would be unethical if I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't violate your confidentiality. Now, if they come up and talk to me, I'm not, like, I acting like I can't hear them. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm always like, hey, how you doing? Mm-hmm. But it does put everyone and it, and different people have different opinions about their own confidentiality. Mm-hmm. I remember once being at the farmer's market here and here in Lebanon, it's like multiple stories that mm. the top floor looks down on the bottom floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and my client saw me walking around downstairs and she's like, Kim, talk to her. That's my therapist. Like through the entire farm. So like less than ideal in terms of like that particular model, but it does like, it, it's a different dynamic. Like, yes, we're attached and we're connected. And at a certain point, our relationship is going to reach its natural conclusion. Mm-hmm. And so it's my responsibility as a provider to not foster a sense of dependency and be that agent of change for you to take whatever you learn within our relationship and sort of take it out of our dynamic and into those other natural members of your ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Um, So I might learn within the therapeutic relationship that when someone forgets to call me back, um, maybe it's not an outright rejection. Maybe they just got busy and forgot to call me back. And maybe I learned that through the therapeutic relationship and can take that into my other natural relationships but that's the transfer of skills that we're really looking for Mm -hmm. and even at times some of the attachment doesn't necessarily it it, the change happens without choice it it Mm -hmm. might happen due to you know even in our case we have a lot of children being removed from their primary caregivers and being placed into foster care for the first time and that's you know their attachment there is just and cut off mm-hmm. and they have to try and figure out then decipher for themselves at whatever age they are unfortunately younger younger what what am I to do with this this now am I supposed to trust these new people am I supposed to you know be myself around them what can I say what can I not say and that's kind of we're, we're in it with them helping them navigate it but it definitely can be confusing I'm sure for a young kiddo in a certain type of circumstance like that chatted a little bit about attachment styles within the workplace, but that was one of the topics that I found myself feeling a little bit curious about. And then we have to probably talk about romantic relationships since, like, it is the Valentine's Day episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, so, one of the things when I was doing some research is that people with secure attachment actually have higher levels of job satisfaction and overall well-being within the workplace. And people with secure attachment styles have greater job engagement as well as lower levels of stress and distress associated with high-stress jobs. Um, And I thought that that, I don't know, that particular data data point kind of stood out to me, especially as, like, helping professions and a big part of the conversation the most recent years has been about, like, stress and burnout and moral injury and all those different challenges within the helping professions. Um, And I found myself wondering if there is, like, that paradoxical connect or, like, that intersecting uh, relationship between the events that lead us into the helping professions, the attachment patterns that 
sort of grow out of those life experiences? And then how does that feed into this? And there's a lot of systemic challenges. There's like insurance barriers, regulatory barriers, uh, providers aren't perfect. There's a lot of ways in which the system needs to improve. Um, and I find myself wondering if those attachment patterns don't have some, if, if there isn't something more to that when it comes to the way our field has been impacted. I think nobody wants to go into a different type of a workplace environment and be like, I don't even know what I'm doing here, but yeah. like, you know, and so that makes a big difference. I know that in, in the many roles that I've had just in the short amount of time in the mental health field, like depends on, you know, your onboarding experience can like mm -hmm. get you really hype about the job or it can be like, mm -hmm. it can overwhelm you. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I remember like in PC, when I first came to PCS and I did my, my days of startup, I was like, wow, I feel like so connected, so connected. Like I met you, I met your dad, I met all these people. I'm like, wow, I feel so connected to this company. And I still have that feeling. I feel like I'm in the know of what's going on, when it's going on. When we go to HQ, I'm like, yeah, this is great. Like yeah. I'm going to sit here and like, tell me about what's going on but having that I definitely do feel that secure attachment and it makes me excited about the work that we do it makes me you know excited about waking up and coming to work every day but enjoying it also whereas I feel as though if I didn't or I necessarily didn't have the positive relationship that I do have with my supervisors no it's not you're gonna you're gonna dread coming to work you know I think that's what it is, the positive relationships. I feel like PCS has given so many positive relationships and such a professional boundary that it's I don't, it's not like, oh, I'm going to work. Um, like, mm -hmm. I'm going to work. Like, yeah. this is fun. This is what I enjoy. And I think that's that's the beauty of it. And it's like in previous jobs, it's not always. You don't feel as connected. Yeah. Because of my supervisor role or my, you know, whatever role I have, it's like that connection's not there. And so the, my relationship, my professional relationship isn't always the best. Mm -hmm. But I feel like PCS is probably like the best professional relationships I've had in my, you know. Yeah. It's just turning into an advertisement. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Shout yeah, out PCS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hiring jobs at um, I think, though, too, just recognizing that, like, attachment is more than just romantic relationship. Like, I know you said we have yeah. to get into romantic, but it's more than just romantic. So much more. It's friendship. It's coworkers. It's just your employer. And so what I'm hearing from them is like, they came in and felt like a secure attachment to PCS, which I would agree the same thing. Like, first day was, you know, everyone comes in, it's like, I'm the head of this. And I, I'm like, wow, like, this is a big company. And I'm meeting all of these people. Mm. Establishing that from day one, that even if you don't have that attachment style, like you can do that, you can have a secure attachment style with work or with friends like you can kind of almost I don't know have different ones but no and I think there, there's some research to suggest at least like uh, so I did my thesis on looking at attachment patterns for romantic relationships same-sex friendships and then opposite sex friendships or friends with benefits, um, which, you know, I don't know. Researching friends with benefits was a lot of fun for my thesis. I, I don't know. I, I enjoyed myself. But um, one of the things that really came out of, of me doing that type of research and just reading, like, the, the, the sheer volume of attachment-based research is that for so many folks that have a less secure attachment style um, – practicing attachment behaviors in those lower stakes relationships. And I mean, truly just non-romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. Romantic relationships have a whole host of other factors, like 
for the most part, not always, but many romantic relationships have some layer of like exclusivity um, or a component of exclusivity involved within the relationship structure or the expectation of exclusivity. Um, romantic attachments have a tendency to have more dependency when it comes to like financial needs, um, emotional needs, uh, physical safety and security mm -hmm. needs. So there's a lot of ways in which romantic relationships are distinguished from friendship relationships, workplace colleagues, even friends with benefits. Um, and practicing more securely attached connections in those other contexts um, the research really supports that that can lead to better, more securely attached romantic relationships. Um, the inverse can also be true. Like a bunch of negative romantic connections can impact and negatively influence your attachment patterns within non-romantic connections. So there is like a reciprocal relationship here that I don't know that we pay much attention to, um, but it's definitely worth attending to and some research that I've done kind of personally yeah. um, I saw a model that was your attachment style that you get you know from a kid isn't just you and your parents um, it's based in you know you and your siblings mm -hmm. if you have a really negative or a really positive relationship with your siblings how is your just home dynamic how is the general like it's it's not just this little thing it's can be a bigger model that there are so many factors it's not just how your mom or dad interacted with you what was the culture like um i know even just in talking um yesterday at a school meeting there's a teacher assistant in a school i go to that just very different culture and she was talking with one of our staff one day and was like you cut your hair what does your husband think about that and she's like he doesn't care i just went out and did it like and so thinking too how much of that is impacting attachment mm -hmm. both as a child and even as an adult now yeah the cultural norms there even sometimes too i'm I, I find myself learning more more and more about you know different types of family dynamics that we have i'm like oh i didn't think of that that way or even you know if a family is from a different area or you know we have two caregivers one speaks spanish one speaks english and then you're sitting there like what are they saying you know <laughs> like it, just how they're interpreting different things um and you know even for example thinking of that that family that i had like if trust was broken to the, the Spanish-speaking caregiver, it was like, there is no opportunity to earn that mm -hmm. trust back. You have broken my attachment to you, and that is it. Almost as though, you know, I know often in the Amish community, people get shunned. And like, yes. they're like, oh, I'm shunned. And we use that, you know, jokingly at times. But that legit happens. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, for the other caregiver, it's like, well, I'm never going to, like, cut that off with you. But we, we, there's a problem there. So even just how different people in different types of environments and their culture, you know, interpret those types of things is very, very different. Mm -hmm. No, it's, even as you were mentioning it, one of the, the things that came up in my preparation for today is this idea of like con how attachment patterns really influence our conflict resolution mm -hmm. um, and like specifically within the workplace. And I, um, it was interesting because I know, so uh, I, I think I grew up in, in a context where I had phenomenal parents and I grew up with a dad that worked a lot and a little brother that was severely special needs. So... Um, I don't have like interpersonal trauma, but there was that expectation that as the oldest sibling and the non-impaired sibling, um, 
I had to, there were different expectations for me, right? And I had to be more independent, I think, than maybe the average bear and this, that, and every other thing. That's really followed me into adulthood. Super independent, always have been. Don't really like depending on others because I can do it best, right? Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. Um, and in adulthood, one, I've done a ton of therapy. Two, my partner and I have done therapy together to both look at our attachment woundedness. Um, because I think we both had that more avoidant attachment style and not so far the, so that we would avoid intimacy mm-hmm. or connection to one another. But if times got tough, we got quiet mm-hmm. um, and we would more separate and go into ourselves. And so in 2020, my brother passed away. My husband's dad passed away and within two months of each other, like it was like, like the thing. Right. And so what we both noticed is that we didn't fight. There wasn't conflict. We just lost sight of one another. And so through that, we went to an attachment focus. We went to see an emotion-focused couples therapist very specifically to address our own attachment patterns, our own childhood woundedness, and then how this grief and loss in adulthood was kind of interplaying with all of those pieces mm-hmm. and impeding our ability to turn to one another when we, and I think part of it, we both kind of mind fucked ourselves into thinking like, well, you don't have capacity to take mm-hmm. care of me and I don't have capacity to take care of you. So we'll just both deal with our own stuff mm-hmm. and we'll come back together like five years from now when we both have <laughs> moved on. Um, but as you can imagine, that didn't work for a lot of the different reasons. Um, And so I I think it kind of leads me to one of the questions, and so I'll just fall into it now, but like if somebody recognizes that they have an attachment challenge or recognizes that their pattern of relating may be causing them more problems interpersonally than not or whatever it is, if an individual starts to recognize that they have a woundedness in terms of their attachment relationships, what are some recommendations or what are some means by which an individual can go to begin to deepen those attachment connections and heal some of that woundedness. I think the first step there, you said it, is recognize it mm-hmm. and then figure out, you know, is now the time that you actually do want to dress it? Mm-hmm. It might not be necessarily with everything else that's going on in your life. It might not be the best time to, to go for it. Yeah. But it, but if it is there, um, you know, if you are in a romantic partnership with someone, you you do consider them to have some level of attachment with you or you wouldn't be in the relationship. Mm-hmm. But with that, it's it's about that communication of like, hey, this is where I'm at, like right now. And I'm still trying to figure it out myself. But I just want you to know that like, if I may seem like this way, this may be why. Um, I know, and even we talk a lot about in family-based, like even how love languages play, in, it play mm-hmm. into that with the attachment um, and stuff of that nature of like, this is not what I need from you right now. This is what I need from you right now. Or, hey, I'm not in a space to be able to give you what you need. Um, and that, that can be challenging to, to navigate, but the more that it becomes common conversation, the less it becomes like the taboo of like, oh, we don't go there. We're going to block it off. We both got our own shit. And then, you know, we'll come back later. Five years later. Yeah. yeah. When I think going off of that, recognizing if you're ready to get into it, but also that like, it's a you thing. Like, yes, you can get support from your partner. You can support from your friends, from your therapist, but like it boils down to, you need to do the work Mm -hmm. on yourself because if you're just like, Hey, I have this attachment style. So I need X, Y, Z from you to make me feel secure always. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's not going to do anything for no matter who you're going to. I was just going to say, like, open communication, too, though. Like, mm-hmm. yes, own your shit. Like, that you have to do the work. But also, like, the open communication of, like, hey, 
I'm going to work on this with myself. Yes, I need your support, but like, just recognize like if things go haywire, like this is why I'm working on it. I'm owning it, but like patience also, mm-hmm. and just continuing that open communication with whoever partners, friends, mm-hmm. family. Especially if you're a person that's like hyper focused on walking around making it look like you have your shit together all yeah. the time. And then like somebody's like poking at you like, oh, like what is going on? Something, something's going on. And I'm like, no, no, there really is. Oh, okay, yeah. there is. Mm-hmm. But you know, that just having that like boil inside of you until it's able to just come out in a way that it's like, no, I told you like, I'm fucking fine. Like, you know, <laughs> and then it finally comes out. But if it's just communicated from the get go, like, oh, like, you know, she had therapy today. Maybe she talked about a tough, tough topic that mm-hmm. she's relating to herself. You know, it, it might come across to the romantic partners better and not so much that, though, they did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's um, interesting. I think that once you have that insight, then to also keep it in the front of your brain, mm-hmm. like to start looking at, um, because I also know that, like, based on some of my life experiences, I mean, I, I, I've lived and breathed attachment since my, like, early 20s. Like, I've thought, I've just, uh, the, the concept captured my attention. And probably, like most grad students, it's because there was a little bit of me search in there, mm-hmm. right? Like, I saw something in the literature that I was like, oh, shit, that's mm-hmm. me. Let's look at it more. Um, and I think one of the things that I started noticing was those more avoidant attachment patterns. And I struggle a little bit to trust and I'm more hyper-independent. I'm more likely that like, if you hurt me, I'll, I'll cut off the relationship versus being more interested in repair. And mm-hmm. I think I've healed a lot of those parts of myself. But I also remember like in my early 20s, starting to try to work on like how I could trust um, my my romantic partner that was before I met my husband, uh, or I think I'd met my husband, but I was with this other dude, whatever. That's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so it like, and I'm really trying to figure out like, how can I trust this guy and what do I need to work on? And so I go to a therapist and I'm like, listen, I got some trust issues. It's my own shit. I got to work through. No, I was dating a knucklehead and I shouldn't have trusted him. So I think that's also the pat. Like if you're trying to heal attachment ruptures, within a non-securely attached relationship that's really hard to do individual work. I think in those instances is where the couple psychotherapy might come into play if it's a relationship that you see a more permanency to. Um, But then I think my relationship advice outside of that would be like, hey, maybe like pause on the dating apps for right now. I don't know how kids meet people these days. I think it's all through dating apps. like suspend your tinder subscription for just a minute um (laughs) like look at yourself a little bit and then try a new type of relationship because i also think and i don't think this the research supports that different attachment patterns have a tendency to be drawn to and attract Mm -hmm. different types of attachment patterns and so folks who have a more secure attachment style are more likely to find other more securely attached individuals um Versus, like, you see a lot of the dynamics of ambivalent and avoidant. Like, they love one another and Mm -hmm. can't figure it out. They just get stuck in a never-ending pattern of, like, pursuer distancer. Mm -hmm. um, And then switch who's who in each role until the end of time. So um, I would say that's probably the thing that stands out the most to me about doing your own work. I think with the attachments too, it's it's like we all have this drive, you know, to be connected to another individual, to be connected mm-hmm. to a group of people. Um, but I think it also can show up in different different stages of your life. If you're you're something like, oh, I'm ready for a serious relationship, well, I'm ready to start trying to have a family, you know, stuff like that comes up. 
you, you weren't thinking that way a couple of years ago, but now you are. Things have happened in your life that maybe have led to that. I think there's also two outlier ends of it, you know, people who are like overseeking that like so hard to the point where it's like, hey, just let's hit that pause, like you're saying. And their yeah, like focus it. on yourself first and figure out what we need to do there. Or people who are just like, nope, I don't trust anyone. The world is doomed. Like, I'm just going to fly <laughs> solo. And that's what it is. But underlyingly, I think we all have that desire for that connectedness on, on some level. Mm-hmm. I guess we need to talk about romantic attachment now. Because this is Valentine's <laughs> Day. Um, this is our Galentine's. This is the Galentine's Day episode. Yeah. No dudes wanted to talk about attachment. <laughs> um, for those curious about the casting of the pod, it is a volunteer basis. Every once in a while, I'll reach out to somebody who I know. Ha- like, I basically coerced Deb to be on a pod in a couple weeks from now about uh, Krav, physical mm. movement. Mental mm-hmm. health is one of our upcoming topics. Um, but uh, for the most part, it's volunteer basis. And not a single man was like, I would like to talk about <laughs> that. I don't know what that says, dudes. But... Um, so like what we know is that those with secure attachments have a tendency, um, to form more stable and satisfying romantic relationships. We also know that they're more comfortable, um, with intimacy, are more open in expressing their emotions as well as express their emotions more effectively. So kind of what you had said earlier, this idea of like someone can't be responsible Mm -hmm. for your attachment, like you are responsible for you. Um, but folks with a more secure attachment pattern tend to be more able to express those emotions and express them in a way that they're more likely to be heard and lead to greater probabilities of effective conflict resolution. Um, those with secure attachment are more likely to be able to trust their partner, navigate conflict constructively, um, and have a tendency to have a more positive view of themselves and their partners. Now, that is in direct contrast to our anxious, preoccupied attachment, um, where these folks have a tendency to seek high, high levels of closeness and reassurance. Um, In my family-based world, those might be my folks more prone to, like, enmeshed boundaries. Um, I was actually at a family-based group soup a couple of weeks ago, and they were all joking about how they love enmeshment, like, just how good it feels (laughs) to have a deeply enmeshed relationship. Until it doesn't, right? But it feels great at first. Um... High levels of closeness, also requiring really high levels of reassurance, support seeking. Um, Oftentimes these folks may also struggle or have heightened sensitivity um, or fear of abandonment. And this can lead um, to some pretty specific challenges surrounding jealousy, um, as well as that fear Mm -hmm. of rejection. Um, Then last but not least, is it last? Nope, we've got one more category. Um, (laughs) Second to last but not least, in dismissive avoidant attachment, um, these folks might really struggle with intimacy and avoid emotional vulnerability. Um, They may prioritize independence at the cost of their most important relationships. Um, They might be uncomfortable with expressing their emotions or... um, Oftentimes what you'll see in this particular type of individual is they um, don't express, don't express, don't express, don't express, and then express a lot. Um, So under-expressive until they're over-expressive, usually in a way that is contextually inappropriate or maybe more than is helpful for the setting. Um, They prioritize independence and may be emotionally distant in romantic relationships. Then finally, we've got that fearful, avoidant, or disorganized attachment. Um, These folks have a tendency to display both. Um, 
rejection sensitivity, that fear of rejection is pretty high. Um, they may also avoid those relationships altogether. They desire folk uh, closeness, but fear it simultaneously. Um, and oftentimes you can really see that internal conflict play out within their relationship dynamics. Um, so as we move towards the most loving day of the year, um, what advice would you all have to those who are in a committed relationship, um, but are after listening to this pod, noticing they've got the insight now, they're realizing that they might have a less than ideal attachment pattern or be romantically involved with somebody with a less than ideal attachment pattern? I think trying to like get ahead of it, mm -hmm. um, especially for those more avoidant ones um speaking as someone who can be avoidant and can let it go push it down push it down push it down and then typically it's like you didn't wash this cup the way i wanted it washed mm -hmm. and like try tell you yes <laughs> and you back in 2020 yeah. when you yes mm -hmm. so like trying to get ahead of it and like knowing those things so if you're if this is sparking like a hey maybe i think this is me maybe getting more in touch with yourself like what can i kind of take from that can i try to actively try to work on yeah i would also say like do you, like kind of recognizing within yourself like do you even want to work on it like, yes do you yes first step is admitting it and recognizing it and then moving on to like oh crap do i want <laughs> do to I do want do, to do i want to do the work mm -hmm. and so like i said open communication with your partner like if that is your forever partner you know you're in this together but you're also like own your shit get it get it done <laughs> yeah. i also think it's it comes into play of like y you have to figure out what works for your specific situation and your specific relationship yes there's you know all, all of these fun you know theories and models and and stuff to relate to but nobody else is in your shoes other than you and, mm -hmm. and your and your partner um so if something works for you that works for you then that's great i also think that that's based on like what you visually witnessed like as a secure attachment what you visually witnessed as like anxious avoidant like for us we say anxious avoidant a lot shows up a lot but you know that necessarily wasn't what we were used to you know per se or a secure attachment might look different to one of us than it does to a family you know just having a security in in one specific area of though like i know you're going to put dinner on the table every night mm -hmm. that's great like that's maybe all that person is used to thinking that a secure attachment mm -hmm. is other than like all the emotional you know availability to be there for your partner and those kinds of things come into play so i, I think it's just recognizing what works for you um, and just being open and communicating about what you may still need mm. No, it, I think that that is, like, especially when I'm thinking about attachment trauma, attachment ruptures, like some of those different pieces, or just interpersonal trauma in general, which I think has a tendency to, like, interplay with our attachment styles. Um, one of my favorite things to do with my clients that are struggling with some of those trust-based behaviors is to start to challenge them to consider trust dimensionally. Mm -hmm. um, so like me, I, and I use myself in that instance a lot. So you trust me, right, to show up reasonably. I'm always like two minutes late. But like you trust me to reasonably show up for our sessions, right? Like if I say I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. I might be there at 2.05 instead of 2 o'clock. I'm working on it. Um, but... You know, you know I'm going to be there. You know I'm going to get there. Um, you can trust me to maintain your confidentiality. You can trust me that if I'm present, I'm going to be present with you. You're going to have my eyes. You're going to have my attention. I'm not going to be here, like, 
I don't know, playing Pokemon Go on my phone. Like, I'm going to be paying attention to you. And those are the things that you can trust me for. Mm-hmm. Um, now, should you trust me to change the oil in your car? Probably not. <laughs> no, I would I would say that's a hard no. Um, should you trust me to do your taxes? Again, hard no on that. Like, I, I'm really bad at that. I once messed it up and owed the federal government a whole bunch of money. Don't trust me <laughs> to do your taxes. Like, so there's lots of different ways in which, especially within romantic relationships, helping them to start to recognize what are the parts of this relationship that can be trusted, that strength-based approach, and how do we grow those areas while hopefully simultaneously minimizing the areas in which trust is not readily available. Um, and I think part of that starts to think about trust instead of all or nothing, mm-hmm. on or off, it's more dimensional than that. It's not necessarily ha- has to be yes or no. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we do here at the How to Be Happy Hours that we uh, accept questions from the audience when we have a panel coming up. So we've got a couple upcoming panels. Um, if you have an interest uh, or a question for any of those panels, please shoot me an email at kim at howtobehappyhour.com. Um, and some of our upcoming panels, our next one is on, oh, themes of uh, mental health themes throughout fantasy literature um, and how different like fantasy stories really have a tendency to be almost pseudo-therapeutic in certain ways. Uh, so we're going to look at mental health themes throughout fantasy literature. The one after that is about physical movement and mental health and wellness and how those two things are over overlap or how those two things are related. Um, that one I'm excited for. Uh, I'm excited for all of them, but that one in particular is really shaping up nicely. Um, We've got another one coming down the line on creativity and recovery and how do we use different creative outlets um, to obtain and maintain uh, recovery from substance use or mental health. Um, And so those are like the big picture pieces that are coming up. So if you have a question, please don't hesitate to submit it. Um, But one of the questions that was submitted for today's training um, is uh, what are ways in which leaders or supervisors can accommodate various attachment styles to foster a supportive workplace culture? I feel like even just getting to know your staff Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, creating that space. I know that our supervisor, Deb, will always be like, do I have permission to go here with you? And I think there's something like so professional about that because you are in a situation where like genuinely they're being curious, you know, but it also is like, wow, I do feel more comforted by that. Like you're asking me permission on my terms if I'm cool to go there with you. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I think catering to it in that aspect of I think that would appeal to any attachment style of like hey this is what I'm trying to get at with you like Mm -hmm. how are you feeling about that I think going back to the open communication we talked about earlier as having a supervisor who has that open communication with you who you you know you can go to um you know personally even if it's just like a hey I have some stuff going on I just like, I need a day or like, you know, I'm working through this Um, or just, hey, I'm really struggling with this with work. I know in with IBHS and I'm assuming with family based too, like we're very remote. I'm in schools. I'm in homes. I'm in daycares. So that level of trust of you're out there doing your thing. But at the same time, I can go to Amy and say, I'm struggling with X, Y, Z, and she's either helping me work through it or 
let me come out and check it out and see what I can do. So just knowing that you always have that kind of level of support there. No, I agree with that. That takes me to like, like at the basis of all of the attachment literature is this concept of the secure base. And we haven't talked about it yet today, I don't think, but this idea that when a child is growing up and developing, um, that toddler, when they begin to toddle, can toddle out and explore their world and try new things and um, experiment with their environment. And then if they feel danger or unsafe, they can hobble back to mom or dad or grandma, whoever that secure base is, and they know that that person is going to protect them and hold them close and comfort them and support them in self-soothing. Um, and I think that as a supervisor, especially like y'all in very remote positions or more remote positions, you're out there doing the work, oftentimes not in a setting where you can walk down the hall and like knock on your supervisor's door, which Mm -hmm. is so common for a lot of mental health Mm -hmm. settings. And yet I think that's why both of the models that you work within have a lot of supervision built in Mm -hmm. to the model. Like you have those touch points just built into your day to day. And that's just a part of the work that we do. And I think it's that way to have those, that secure base, those touch points at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. Even just showing up, I know uh, keeping like the professionalism there is, is always important, but even we go into that space with our clients too. Like we walk in there and you know, we're people too. Mm -hmm. So like having that of like, oh, like I spilled my coffee on myself this morning, like having that, like owning that we're all human kind Mm -hmm. of aspect instead of like holding yourself at a level higher, even though, you know, in the workplace you are, but really you are there as, as a supportive aspect for us, I think is super helpful. And we get that. I describe our County as like working in a pinball machine every day, but we have our supervisors kind of like at the bottom, like helping us (laughs) stay afloat. Like that's, that's their role. And they truly do that. I like those little whackers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so then last but not least, let's fall into last call. Um, so last call is a cultural phenomenon that we here at the pod would like to see kindly see itself out. Um, and specific for today's last call um, is this idea or this notion that romantic relationships are the pinnacle and that all other relationships just aren't nearly as important as that romantic relationship, that over-prioritization of romantic attachment, sometimes at the cost of or the the detriment to other non-romantic relationships. And so I think um, we made some strides in this particular zone, like for many years, what Disney only made movies about Prince meets princess, they meet, they fall in love, they kiss at the end, fade to black. Um, and then they started, like, the, the the Frozen series, right? That's about sisterhood. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a romantic piece to it, sure, because we can't get too far away. <laughs> um, but th- it's about sisterhood or... Um, Onward is another one of the, that's about brothers and connection and family. And I think so often it's all about the romantic relationship and it leads individuals who aren't currently within a romantic relationship to have this like less than or this qualification on their relationships. And so what can we do as a field, as a culture, as (laughs) providers within it to sort of even the playing field between those romantic connections and all of the other really important relationships that feed and contribute to our attachment styles um, that need just as much love as romantic love. 
I mean, I know a big focus in our realm of IBHS is establishing natural supports and community supports for kids. Um, so many times I go into families and I'm like, okay, what supports do you have? Especially, you know, parents are like, I get my nails done sometimes. <laughs> and I'm like, your kids need the support, but like you need these supports too. You can't rely on just your family or, oh, grandma and grandpa take them. Like, <laughs> that's great, but we need some other supports that we can kind of build into there and I think that kind of falls into attachment like yeah you have your secure family even if it is a secure family because we have those families that you go in and you're like wow this is a great family um but we need to extend that to yeah. more we can't just have that one that one thing I think for a person who might have experienced not necessarily a secure attachment in their lifetime, if they found that in other in other areas of relationships other than romantic partners, mm -hmm. that can be something that seems threatening to kind of let go of when that romantic partner does come into play. That it's like, well, you can't, you know, limit my experience with these other relationships because because you're here now. I've I've you know had these other relationships longer than I've known you. Mm -hmm. You know, so now it, it is kind of like that that safety, that security that almost feels feels threatened there. But I do think it's important to maybe, you know, normalize that conversation more of like, it's important to have all those connections and consider yourself as like that spider web of like everything you got going. And yes, of course, your your romantic partner, the majority of the time you're spending the most time with, but some days I spend longer days with my work partner <laughs> than I do with my romantic partner, you know, and, and I value our professional relationship that we have and mm -hmm. making that, you know, more normalized as being okay and it's not as though like without your romantic relationship you have nothing that's that's not the case and I feel like different types of attachments come out with different relationships too it's like my work relationship is completely different than a, a love relationship whatever would be and so it's like you kind of can sit back and be like wow I you know I have this type of attachment to this person but I have this attachment to this person and just start recognizing more about yourself and understanding more about yourself mm -hmm. even with our kids now of course we have you know a lot of kiddos it's cute it's like oh I have a crush on so-and-so mm -hmm. or you know and they, they're like so hyper focused on that romantic mm -hmm. you know connection that they have to someone um and kind of slowing that down a little bit and being like but yeah but like look at this awesome relationship you have with your sibling or like your yeah. friend your best friend that you've had for like 10 years and now like I know with my sisters I have younger sisters that are twins and they split for college for the first time ever in their life and it was like oh shit yeah. like but th that's a different type of relationship that's not on that romantical level but still is the same value of importance and I think too realizing that though you might be in a romantic relationship that you think is going to be forever mm -hmm. there's the potential that it's not so if you put all your focus into that romantic attachment if that falls apart who do you have to fall back on when it, it brings up the point that like different relationships are going to serve different functions mm -hmm. within mm -hmm. your life. Like I, I have a, a childhood or like early adolescent best friend um, that we've like hung in with each other all these years. She's the person I talk to on the phone. She's the person that I call when I like feel like I might be about to commit a homicide. Like that's <laughs> that relationship. Um, if I'm having a really hard day and I pick up the phone and call my husband, he is not a phone talker. <laughs> he is not going to fulfill that. Like, if you look back through my call log history, it's like all of our conversations are under a minute. Like, mm -hmm. all of them. Um, and so different, relate. like, that's a very concrete example, but different relationships are going to fulfill different emotional needs. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to allow your relations, like, different relationships mm -hmm to meet different needs. And so um, you might have one friendship that like, that's your friend. Like I can use myself, like I have my friends that 
are my chicken friends and we mm. get together and we talk about like our creatures and like weird animal husbandry shit and like all that kind of stuff. And then I've got a different group of friends that are like my nighttime friends. Like those are my going out friends. I see them a lot less now that I'm almost 40, but like those are a different types of relationship. And then I have like my mom friends that we go out and we do a lot of kid centric related things together. And it's totally okay to have different types of relationships that fulfill different levels of need. Need. Mm -hmm. And I would go on to say that it's actually pretty un, unhelpful or, uh, I, I don't know, I think you're less likely to be satisfied if you put all of your needs in one relationship basket. Because uh, I don't think it's possible to be everything to one person. Um, that's putting a lot of pressure on that relationship. And I think ultimately um, could contribute to a lot of different challenges. Mm -hmm. So anything left unsaid as we wind down here, as we talk about attachment patterns, and um, I hope everyone has a happy Valentine's Day. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but remember, it can be about all different kinds of love. It doesn't have to just be about romantic love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even if you don't mean to say it. I know in, in my family, like it's like, oh, love you, bye, every time you get off the phone. So like sometimes I'm like, no, I didn't mean to say I love you, but... Yeah, in, in some type of a way, you know. I, I do I, I do enjoy your company, but not in that type of way. So my hope is that you really awkwardly say to somebody, mm -hmm. one balance. Like I love you. Story. Goodbye. Yeah. 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 Goodbye. <laughs> well, thank you all. Thanks for coming here and joining me here today. Thank you for having these unique conversations. And uh, for my listeners at home, thank you so much for the listen. Uh, if you have any suggestions for topics that you'd like to see the pod tackle or any questions for the pod, please don't hesitate to shoot me an email at kim at howtobehappyhour.com. Thank you so much. <laughs>